as the G20 ministerial meetings run into the Ukraine wall over joint statements, how hard has the road to the G20 summit become for India? Hello and welcome to Worldview at the Hindu with me, Sahasini Heather. This is episode 98. All these areas, the G20 has capacity to build consensus and deliver concrete results. We should not allow issues that we cannot resolve together to come in the way of those we can. As you meet in the land of Gandhi and the Buddha, I pray that you will draw inspiration from India's civilizational ethos to focus not on what divides us, but on what unites us. If he had had a perfect meeting of minds on all issues and captured it fully, then obviously uh, it would have been uh, a collective statement. But there were issues and I, I think uh, the issues, I would say uh, very frankly, concerned uh, the Ukraine conflict uh, on which there were divergences. So that was what Prime Minister Narendra Modi said before and External Affairs Minister S.J. Shankar said after the G20 foreign ministers meeting this week that ended without a joint statement. Now, foreign ministers at the G20 don't normally seek to negotiate a joint statement at their level. It's done much more at the finance minister's level and nearly every year, every year except for last year in Bali, we have seen that. Last week, the G20 finance ministers and central bank governors meeting, however, that was held in Bangalore also ended without a joint statement. And that was for only the second time in history, as I said, the last time being last year in Bali. It is now clear that the differences over the continuing war in Ukraine are a serious threat to consensus in the G20 process itself, particularly here in India. The one big positive, that there were no walkouts like there were last year by one leader or the other. All the leaders sat in a room together and US Secretary of State and Russian Foreign Minister Blinken and Lavrov even met each other and spoke on the sidelines of the meeting in Delhi. What also came out clearly is that for the first time, China is standing with Russia in opposing the joint text at the G20, probably a first for a multilateral format, even though both countries had signed off on the same text in 2022. I'll tell you more about that in a bit. As a result, India, as the chair, actually was forced to just issue a simple summary and outcomes document instead. A 10-page document that included 24 paragraphs, you can read them online, on the situation in the world, concerns over food and energy security, climate change, humanitarian relief after the earthquakes, particularly in Turkey and Syria that we had covered on Worldview, gender equality and other issues. Now, if you look closer at page one of that document, there, there at the footnote, if you like, you can see that it says clearly that all countries except Russia and China agreed to the paragraphs on Ukraine, which have basically been re reproduced from the Bali 2022 document. So now this actually changes things a little bit. You might well ask, if they signed on to the document in November 2022, and remember some months ago at Worldview, we had talked about how difficult it was to find that consensus, then why not in February and in March 2023 at these two meetings in India? So in Delhi, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov actually addressed a press conference outlining his reasons 
He said, one, that the situation has changed in Ukraine since November 2022, indicating the surge in U.S. and EU military aid to Ukraine. Uh, Russia is now calling it a proxy war in the Ukraine and says that is one of the reasons that has changed Russia's position on the G20 last year. Now, secondly, Russia says if Ukraine is being discussed at what is primarily an economic body, then Russia wants a discussion on what it calls a terrorist attack, a set of explosions that really demobilized the Nord Stream 1 and 2 energy pipelines, if you remember, in the seas last year. This was the pipeline from Russia to many parts of Europe. Russia says Ukraine's President Zelensky has now renounced his support to the Minsk peace agreements. These were made in 2014, 2015. You can read more about them online. So Russia is, uh, is entitled to renounce the Bali document since the situation has changed. So those are Russia's reasons. Chinese Foreign Minister Chin Gang in Delhi for the first time for the conference met with External Affairs Minister Jai Shankar separately. He gave no public reasoning for China's new stand but pitched China's own proposal. It's a peace proposal for Ukraine, not cutting much ice in the West because they say it doesn't include a ceasefire uh, and a withdrawal by Russia. But even so, that's where it stands. So, so you might well ask, why does the G20 matter? What is its history? Why should India care so much about this grouping? Now, the official term, the Group of 20, is the premier forum for international economic cooperation. And of course, India is a part of shaping and strengthening global architecture and governance on all major international economic issues. That's one reason why it's important. I remember it, it held its first meeting of finance ministers and central bank governors in 1999 on the backs of what was then the Asian financial crisis. Uh, it needed global responses. However, the G7, that was the G8, then became the G7 after Russia was uh, taken out of it. It seemed like a very small group. It seemed elitist. Uh, the 38-member OECD, uh, the premier economic body at the time globally was seen as too bulky to be effective. In fact, India hosted in 2002 the meeting of, the, uh, of this new grouping called the G20. Very important that just within a few years of its starting, India actually hosted the finance ministers and central bank governors meeting uh, in India. And you can see the joint communique that was issued then. Then in 2008, after the U.S. banking and financial crisis, the G20 was elevated to a leadership-level meeting by U.S. President George Bush at the time. India actually helped shape the global response to the banking financial crisis because of its uh, role in the G20. The G20 is also mandated to look at issues from something you're hearing much more about, the Global South perspective, with its founders making the point, and these founders were actually Canadian and American, that it marked the shift, quote-unquote, from the denizens of Davos to those who work in Dusseldorf and Detroit. Now, these are manufacturing hubs. And they said that it was going to be a perfect mix of old and new, of the first world and the developing world, of traditional, aging, global elites, as they are called, and the more populous, bustling, growing, emerging economies. The G20 members include 19 countries and the European Union, so it's not that it was G19, but it is these countries and the European Union. Spain is a permanent invitee, so are international agencies, including the UN, IMF, OECD, and others. Today, G20 members account for 60% of the global population, 75% of the global trade, and more than 80% of world GDP. 
And it is, of course, more egalitarian. It has no fixed headquarters. So the headquarters just rotate from presidency to presidency. So the headquarters are in New Delhi at present. Now, what do those ministerial meeting outcomes of no joint statement mean that Indian diplomacy has to do now? One, the failure to bring consensus at the two meetings in Delhi and Bangalore have really made the task of India's diplomats and G20 officials, Sherpas and Sushirpas as they're known, much, much harder. It's also more imperative to do this right now. In June, there will be another round of ministerials leading up to the G20 summit chaired by Prime Minister Modi in September, where the government will really need to do some heavy lifting in other capitals. The action will not be so much in India as it will be in other places, including Beijing and Moscow, to ensure that a text is acceptable to all. Naming Russia and China, as the government has done in its text, is really a precedent. Normally, G20 texts will say they only reflected differences by saying some people objected, some countries objected, many countries felt, one country believed, that kind of thing. Given that the Bali document, uh, and this is an important fourth point, given that the Bali document is no longer a baseline for negotiations, India will possibly need to go back to the drawing board and negotiate a whole new document as it seeks a successful G20 in September. And of course, the document has more or less been agreed upon in this one. It's just the Ukraine paras and a few other places. In doing that, the Modi government may have to put some of its own issues on the back burner, the favorite issues, the UN Security Council reform that hasn't had a mention yet, the WTO vaccine waiver proposal, pushing the West on climate justice demands, pushing China on resolving debt issues with smaller countries. Those are kind of some of the issues that India had been hoping to focus on. In fact, while he was in Delhi, I asked US Secretary of State Antony Blinken what he thought of the future of the G20 and what it would mean without a consensus document. And he was optimistic. Listen in. First of all, I don't want to spoil the show. Uh, we'll let the leaders um, do their work and show the results. But whether that's reflected in a joint statement, whether it's reflected in a chair statement that shows that the overwhelming majority of the G20 countries agreed to work together course of action, honestly, I don't think that makes a, uh, a big difference. If there are uh, going to be an, an outlier country or, or two, uh, when you have 18 of the 20 agreed on uh, what needs to be done and committed to working together to do it, again, that is uh, effective multilateralism in action, effective in actually addressing uh, the world's concerns. Now, fortunately, there is much international travel in the months ahead where Prime Minister, External Affairs Minister, the Foreign Finance Minister, other officials can really pitch in for building this common consensus. In April, Japan hosts the Foreign Minister's meeting of G7 countries in Nagano. Uh, India is a special invitee this year, and even if External Affairs Minister Jay Shankar does not go or is not invited to this particular G7 meeting, India could enlist Japan's assistance in pushing for more compromising positions from all of these developed world countries and Western countries. In May, India will host the SCO foreign ministers meeting in Goa. We've spoken about this before. Both Russia and China are members of that. Also, Prime Minister Modi in the same month will travel to Hiroshima in Japan for the G7 outreach summit with leaders as a special invitee and then to Sydney for the Quad summit with Australia, US and Japan. And remember, they've just had a Quad Foreign Ministers meeting in Delhi. Then in June, Prime Minister Modi will host the SCO summit in Delhi with Presidents Putin and Xi Jinping invited. 
And then he would possibly travel to the United States for a state visit with President Biden. So he's going to meet all the principals. In August, Prime Minister Modi will also travel to Brazil for the BRICS summit. Now, remember, all the BRICS members, B-R-I-C-S, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, all of them are actually members of the G20. So this August, it becomes a very important uh, meeting of BRICS in South Africa that India will attend and will try to seek that final consensus when all the leaders come to Delhi in September. Eventually, remember, diplomacy takes on a whole new meaning for the host of any multilateral summit. It's different when you're just one of the guests. And as the host of the G20 this year, India will need to make concessions, knock on doors, work the telephones, burn the midnight oil, if it wants to seek a successful consensus at the conclusion of its presidency. Naming and blaming those who wreck that consensus is good for the optics, but doesn't really replace the substance of a joint communique, which really will take some hard work. I'm going to get some reading recommendations for you. And literally, it's a short, short list this week. Uh, but that really tells you how little is actually written about the G20. There's a little more on multilateralism. I won't go there on this edition of Worldview. First, many articles at The Hindu's website, www.thehindu.com. Uh, this profile of G20 by me is there. Also, there's the website www.g20.org. Now, this is run by India for this year because, as I said, told you, it's rotational. And all the documents and past research are also available at the University of Toronto's project page. This is a very important uh, page for you to look at if you're interested in the G20. Uh, it has all the previous uh, documents. In terms of books, there's this new one. I think I've spoken about a paper before, G20 at 2023, the Roadmap to Indian Presidency by V. Srinivas. Uh, then there's India and the G20, Rule Taker to Rule Maker by Manjeet Kriplani. That came out in 2021. 20 years of the G20, from global cooperation to building consensus, at least so we hope. This is by Rajat Kathuria and Pratik Kukreja. It's an expensive book, but it's a full compendium from a few years ago. There's also the G20 Macroeconomic Agenda, India and the Emerging Economies by Parthit Sarthi Shom. This dates back to 2014, but tells you much more about what was going on uh, at that time. And then there's the Group of 20, G20, by Andrew Cooper and Ramesh Thakur from 2012. You might ask, why am I uh, actually even recommending such an older book, more than a decade old? But it has a lot about the history of the G20, and particularly at that time when the G20 was seen as a problem solver amongst nations. So that's all we have time for you here on, World, uh, on Worldview, but we do hope you will join us again from the team. Thanks for watching.